Today's sponsor is Audible.com. Audible carries over 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Get your free audiobook at www.audible.com backslash undisclosed. And Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. Squarespace features an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and incredible 24-7 customer support. Try Squarespace at squarespace.com and enter offer code UNDISCLOSED at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. On January 13, 1999, Heyman Lee disappeared. 28 days later, on February 9th, her body was found in Lincoln Park. In those four weeks, the police opened a missing persons investigation, which became, upon the discovery of her body, a homicide case. Now today, we'll go day by day through the 28 days it took to find Hay, mapping the investigation of the police and tracing the activities of Hay's friends, classmates, and teachers. We'll discuss the discovery of her body and of the crime scene. Now one note, as we go through the dates, we'll skip the ones that we don't have any documentation for. We start then with January 13th, 1999, the day Heyman Lee went missing. So on Wednesday, January 13th, 1999, our best theory right now is that Heyman Lee left school soon after 2.20 p.m. after telling Becky that she had somewhere else she had to be. Thereafter, she was supposed to pick up her cousin from Campfield at about 3.15 p.m., but she never showed up to pick her up. At that point, her family contacted the police, and Officer Adcock was dispatched to their home at approximately 5.30 p.m. Thereafter, Adcock called both Adnan and Aisha, who was Hayes' best friend. Now, there's a lot of questions about why the police response was so quick after Hay didn't pick up her cousin, Usually, for a missing persons case, we're talking about a significant period of time before officers are dispatched. One reason it's been speculated is about six months before he disappeared, there was another Woodlawn student by the name of Jada Lambert who was found dead and was determined to be strangled by Roy Davis. And interestingly enough, Roy Davis is one of the individuals the Innocence Project is claiming could be the source of DNA that might eventually be tested from the crime scene. And we know, well, this is getting ahead a bit, but we know that the missing person investigation did consider possible links with Lambert's disappearance and murder. We know that there's a map in their file where they'd marked Hayes' expected path that day, and they'd also marked Lambert's house. And in order for Hay to have gotten to Campfield Early Learning Center, she would have had to driven very close to where Lambert lived. And as we know now, the same place where Roy Davis was living at that time. Okay, this makes sense to me, because for all these years, I always wondered why, hey, you know, she was 18 years old, but the police would so quickly, within two hours, open a missing persons case. But given that there was a similar crime that happened not long before, that does make sense. Yeah, and we know that the first indication that anyone else had that she was gone was a 3.30 p.m. phone call that Hayes' brother got from the Campfield Learning Center. So they called the police at 5.12 p.m., which means not even two hours had passed when the missing person investigation was opened up. Officer Scott Adcock went to Hayes' house, where he spoke with her family and made phone calls to her friends to ask about her whereabouts. He also called the lens crafters out in Owing Mills, and they told him that Hay had failed to show up to work that day. 
Interestingly, there's no mention anywhere of a wrestling match or of Hay supposed to be going to wrestling match. So it seems like her family and the police officers by extension believe that her only plans for that day were to get her cousin and then to go to work. He also attempted to contact Dawn, but was not able to do so at that time. Then on January 14th at about 1.30 a.m., Officer Scott Adcock does talk to Dawn. They have a brief conversation and he says that he hadn't seen her that day. So Don says that he was working at the Hunt Valley Lens Crafters that day. That's not his usual store, but he'd been called in. And he says in cereal, it was to cover for another worker there. He got off about 6 p.m. and got home about 7. He said that shortly thereafter, he got a call from the Owings Mills Lens Crafter, where he usually worked, asking about Hay and telling him that she'd failed to show up for work that day. For some reason, he doesn't connect with Adcock until 1.30 that night at which point he tells them he hasn't seen her, hasn't contacted her, hasn't heard from her, and doesn't know anything about where she might be. The unfortunate thing from my perspective is we know, according to Don, he was supposed to get called by Hay after her shift ended at 10 o'clock, and they were supposed to hang out, right? And so the question is, what happens up until 1.30 a.m.? What is Don doing? Why is there not contact between Adcock and him during those several hours when... He apparently knows he's supposed to meet with Hay or at least get a call from her, and yet there's no contact, and he's been told by the lens crafter she didn't show up for work. Thursday, January 14th. The following day, there's an ice storm. It moves in about 3 or 4 a.m., and the roads become very icy, very dangerous. It makes travel conditions very hazardous, and schools are shut down. At some point during that day, the Baltimore County Police Department does contact Hay's family, and they get an update that they've still not heard from Hay and don't know where she is. We know that, according to Jen, and according to the story told at trial, this is also the day that Jen goes to work, and after she gets off, she goes to pick up Jay and then helps him dispose of his clothes in a dumpster at the F&M drugstore. Jen does mention in her statement that she remembers it was raining on this day, which has always seemed like an odd comment to me because... It was not raining at all. It was a big winter storm. If you look at pictures, there's ice and snow all over the place. It's hard to see how Jen would remember this event taking place on a day when it was raining, when you had that kind of weather actually going on. Now, on the evening of the 14th uh, of January, that's one of the last nights of Ramadan. And according to three different witnesses, Adnan gives a talk and he leads prayers at the mosque. Two of those witnesses are Mr. Makbul Patel, who is the president of the mosque, and his son, whose name is Saad. Another witness is a community member named Bilal, who also testified the grand jury that he recalls on the 13th, having gone over notes with Adnan about this specific presentation. And that's important, right? We'll, we'll probably hear more later about Bilal, but he didn't testify at trial, and so the jury never heard his accounting of Adnan going over what he was going to do on the 14th, on the night of the 13th, but it's very significant that he has this recollection that on the night of the 13th, when we have this very real question of whether Adnan went to the mosque, he recalls not only seeing him there, but a specific recollection of preparing for this presentation. Also, Adnan's father remembers Adnan having given a talk and leading prayers because it was a very proud moment for him. Friday, January 15th. On Friday the 15th, School is canceled once again. Travel's still not safe, so no one's in school, and the power's actually out in a lot of places. The 15th is also Krista's 18th birthday. Krista, you'll remember, is one of Hayes and Adnan's friends. 
Her parents threw her a birthday party that evening, and a lot of students at Woodlawn attended. Here's what Krista said about her birthday. Um, so my party was at Liberty Road Volunteer Fire Company, which is in Randallstown, so it was about a mile from my house, if that. I believe the party ran from 7 p.m. to 11 p.m., so that would give people time, if you were still in your provisionals or whatever, to get home by midnight, because that's when we had to technically be off the road. I know that people have said that Jay and Adnan are both there. Yes, they were. In fact, specifically with the ice storm that occurred the two days prior, I remember that most people that lived in the Catonsville, the Woodbridge Valley area that they all lived in, were without power. So a lot of people were actually calling me to be like, hey, can we come early? Because they didn't have any heat. They didn't have food. <laughs> like, I remember Laura came early specifically um, to hang out and get something warm to eat. Um, but I remember Adnan called me either right before or right as the party started. And he's like, hey, I'm really sorry or whatever. I'm going to be a little bit late. I have something to take care of for work, but I should be there, you know, between eight and nine. And he arrived about eight thirty, and he came in with like him, Jay and Stephanie all rode together in the same car. Yes. Do you know who to my knowledge? Yes. Do you know? No, no idea. What's interesting is that Krista has a clear memory of Adnan, Jay and Stephanie showing up together at this party. There have been some statements indicating that Stephanie's car might have been broken down at the time, which is why Jay and Adnan showed up in the same car. But all of this contradicts what Jay said at trial, because Jay claimed that he'd only seen Adnan twice since January 13th. The first time occurred a couple days after the murder, which would be January 15th. The problem is that Jay says... He saw Adnan because Adnan dropped Stephanie off from school. That couldn't have happened because Stephanie and Adnan weren't back in school again until the following Tuesday for Stephanie and Wednesday for Adnan. Also, Jay makes no mention they went to a party together. You know, what's interesting about that party on the evening of the 15th is that while Jay may or may not remember that party, it seems like Adnan was actually probably coordinating with him to go to that party because on the 14th, all day, there's not a single call to Jay. And on the 15th, there's no call to Jay until the evening, around 6 or 7 o'clock, um, when a couple of calls are made from Adnan's phone to Jay. And I can assume that that's them coordinating so they can go to the party together. I kind of think it's significant. You know, if Jay's story is that this, I'm scared of this guy and then they're going to a party together. We buried somebody together two days ago, but he didn't call me for two days. Yeah. And then when, they, when Adnan does call, it's like, hey, dude, we're going to the party together. I mean, it doesn't seem like a situation in which Jay is scared of Adnan or worried about Adnan threatening Stephanie if he's voluntarily showing up at a party with him. Tuesday, January 19th. Tuesday the 19th was the first day back at school after the snow days and MLK Day. Adnan's not there because it's a religious holiday and he doesn't go back to school until the following day on the 20th. At this point, people are starting to realize that Hay is missing, but no one seems to think something could be wrong or that this could be a bigger deal than Hay having run off to see her boyfriend. Wednesday, January 20th. Wednesday, January 20th is the first day Adnan has been back at school since the 13th. It's been one week since Hay has vanished. Still, no one seems overly worried about her absence. Additionally, because the students were moving into the exam period, there were only half days at school. The 21st is also a half day at school, and once again, without the normal routine, Hay's absence is less likely to be noted. Friday, January 22nd. 
this is a semester break, so there's no school held that day. So if you're keeping notes, the only regular school day during that entire week after Hay disappeared on the 13th was Tuesday the 19th. In addition to school being closed, we have Detective O'Shea, who has now taken over the case, talking with Don. It's likely over the phone, but we're not 100% sure because his notes are a bit ambiguous. According to Don, when he talks to O'Shea, he last saw Hay on January 12th, again, the day before she disappeared on the 13th. According to Don, Hay was both happy, she was in a good mood about the relationship. He did, however, mention that Hay said she was fighting with her mom over phone privileges as well as about breaking curfew. But according to Don, he had no indication from her that she was planning on running away from home. If you recall back to one of our prior addendums, this is also the day we have isolated as the day that the School of Social Work at the University of Maryland at Baltimore took place. And so this is, again, not her real name, Kathy, now known by her real name of Christy. This is the day we're speculating could be the day that Adnan and Jay went to Kathy slash Christie's apartment, and that's being recalled instead of January 13th. So it could be that in addition to calling Don, O'Shea called or tried to call Adnan as well. And maybe something related to that is what Kathy heard, if he was there that day. Right, it makes sense. If O'Shea has just come onto the case a few days earlier and he's calling Don, it's natural to assume that he might be calling Adnan in the case as well. After all, we know Adcock had called both Don and Adnan on the same day. Saturday, January 23rd. On the 23rd, according to Yasser, and um, let me just stop for a second and tell you who Yasser is. Yasser is actually a family friend of Adnan's. Um, he attended the same mosque. He didn't go to the same high school as Adnan, but you know he was in the same kind of circle of friends, at least with the mosque friends Adnan had. But he did also know Jay and Stephanie. They had a friend in common. In fact, the friend in common that Yasser had with Jay and Adnan was a young man by the name of Tayyip, who we will talk about another time. But Yasser remembers being at a party on on January 23rd, where Adnan, Jay, and Stephanie were all present and attended together. So this is apparently the second party in very close proximity to Hayes' disappearance where Jay and Adnan are hanging out. Monday, January 25th. On this day, Detective O'Shea visits Adnan's house during the school day and talks with his mom, but Adnan is in school and not at home, and so O'Shea leaves his card behind so that Adnan can call him. According to O'Shea, Adnan, in fact, does call him later that afternoon. But if we look at the cell phone records from Adnan's cell phone, there's no record of a call that he made to O'Shea. So either that call back happened another day or Adnan was using the house line because there's no record in the cell phone of him making such a call. According to a report written by O'Shea, Adnan tells him that on January 13th, he was in class with Hay up until 2.15 p.m., that he didn't see Hay until after school, and that thereafter he went to track practice. Now this is important because in Adnan's current appeal, where he claims his trial counsel was ineffective based upon failing to contact Asia McLean as an alibi witness, the state has continually made the argument that Adnan himself said he remained in the school campus until track practice started. In fact, the state cites to O'Shea's testimony. But if you look at his report and his testimony, he never says Adnan makes that claim. All he says is he was at school, didn't see him after school, and later went to track practice. There's never a statement by Adnan that he remains in the school campus. And so if you think the library where Asia says he saw Adnan, 
is meaningfully different than the school campus. Again, there's really no claim there by O'Shea that Adnan ever made in this statement. And O'Shea also never asks Adnan about whether or not he asked Hay for a ride. It's also worth noting that the 25th is the first day of the third semester at Woodlawn, so it's the first day that everyone's back in school and attending classes. Mr. Terry was supposed to have Hay in his class for the third semester. He noted that she wasn't there on the 25th, and on the 27th, when she still wasn't there, he decided to write a note to the attendance officer and called her home. Apparently, even then, he wasn't too worried about her disappearance because no one seemed to be treating it like a serious matter. Some of the teachers do note that Hay isn't there, but as one of the teachers mentioned, she had a high GPA and could miss a couple days without having her grades seriously affected. But the students were, in the words of Miss Efron, the English teacher, all remarkably unconcerned about Hay's disappearance. Two other teachers echoed that and also noted to police in their own interviews that none of the students seemed very worried. In fact, it wouldn't be until three weeks after Hay's disappearance that there's even a faculty meeting called to discuss it. Later on in February, when Hay still had not returned, she was withdrawn from the school pending further news about her whereabouts. Wednesday, January 27th. At this point, we have the first interview of anyone besides Adnan or Don being interviewed, and that's Hay's best friend, Aisha. She's interviewed by Detective O'Shea. Despite the interview being on January 27th, the notes from that interview are dated February 14th. And the notes are exceedingly short. They're very concise. They only say two things. First, that Hay had told Aisha she was having problems with her mom, but none significant enough to make her leave. While Hay talked about California, she never talked about going there. The second thing in the notes is that Aisha was in class with Hay on January 13th and last saw Hay at the end of class at 2.15 p.m. According to Aisha, Hay was in good spirits and she didn't mention any problems at the time. We have one huge question about this interview, and that question comes from something we raised at the very start of this podcast. What exactly did Aisha tell O'Shea that might not have shown up in the notes? Specifically... We interviewed Krista for the first episode. Susan talked to her. And let's go ahead and re-listen to that clip about Krista describing what Aisha told her on the afternoon of January 13th. When we were talking, she said that she had heard from Hay's brother and that they couldn't find Hay. So when I explained to her, you know, well, in first period class, I heard um, Adnan asked Hay for a ride. Has anybody talked to him? And she's like, well... No, but in psychology, she said that something came up and she wasn't able to give him a ride anymore, so she didn't take him anywhere after school. Something that's always bothered me about the files from the Baltimore County Police and the missing person investigation is how almost all of them are dated February 14th. That's after Hay was found and after Adnan was identified as a suspect, which means all of this is written kind of in hindsight. It's written knowing who the police think the culprit is. You can see the notes kind of reflect that. They're so terse. They're so devoid of any detail. They basically just say, yep, Hay was happy. Yep, she wasn't running away. Nothing of note to see here. And what are the odds that Aisha doesn't mention to O'Shea about Hay turning Adnan down for a ride at the end of school? Or doesn't even mention something more than she seemed happy and wouldn't run away to California. I mean, there there had to have been more that was relevant and important to the investigation, but it's never included in the report. Thursday, January 28th. O'Shea's investigation continues. He talks to Debbie, who basically becomes the first major witness in the case. 
She tells O'Shea that she last saw Hay at 3 p.m. on January 13th. And from there on, all the news articles will report the time given by Debbie as fact, which is important because it could explain, in large part, why Adnan would have overlooked the significance of Asia's alibi. Because if he saw Asia before 3 p.m. at the library, and if Hay was not seen leaving school until 3 p.m., then Asia's kind of irrelevant. And we know that Adnan interacted with Debbie after Hay disappeared because we know from the notes of the clerk when he visited Adnan in jail, the very top note there is about Debbie and him putting together the memorial for Hay. And so certainly we know that Adnan would have been aware of Debbie recalling seeing Hay at 3 o'clock p.m. We know that Hay's friends all kind of thought that maybe Hay was with Don. There was also this California thing going around, which according to Becky, was a rumor started by Ennis Butler. But it seems like Hay did talk about California because Don mentions the same thing in his statement. He says that maybe that's where she went. And if she'd gone there, maybe she would have driven or left her car at a park and ride near the airport. But we know at least Debbie seemed to think that Don knew where she was because Debbie decides to set up a secret email account that she used to contact Don anonymously and ask about Hay, ask if he knew where she was. I'm not clear why she used a secret email account or what the purpose of that was, but eventually they moved from email contact to actually having a phone conversation. And according to Debbie, her phone call with Dawn lasted seven hours. And they basically discussed hey and where she might be for this entire conversation. By the end of the seven-hour phone call, Debbie is convinced that Dawn doesn't know where Hay is. She's not involved in wherever she's gone to and doesn't know where she is. She also mentions, though, that during this phone call, Dawn seems to think that maybe Adnan has been responsible for Hay's disappearance. Now, Susan, am I right that Debbie, when she initially reaches out to Dawn, thinks that Dawn has Hay or... That's kind of what they were thinking. And like at Chris's party, maybe she ran off with him somewhere. She'd mentioned to her French teacher that she and Don had plans to move in together. I don't know if, if that's what the students thought was going on, if maybe she'd gone ahead with those plans and just wasn't coming to school. But yeah, after that phone call, apparently he could Debbie. And after that, the students seemed to realize that Hayes not with him. Monday, February 1st. On February 1st, O'Shea conducts a series of additional interviews about Hay and where she might be. He talks to Hope Schaub, the French teacher. According to O'Shea's report in this interview, there's nothing much said, nothing much of significance that he learns. But according to Schaub, during this interview, O'Shea gives her a list of questions to ask the students and sort of asks her to be the go-between for the police and the Woodlawn community. She testified that the questions she was asking the students on behalf of O'Shea included things like, do you know where Hay and Adnan used to hook up? I mean, I've always thought Ms. Schaub's role in this case was very odd and a little bit concerning because having a teacher act as sort of an unofficial police officer in a missing person investigation, I've always found it odd that this happened, especially the fact that Ms. Schaub was asking questions to students on behalf of the police about fairly invasive things. Yeah, and I'll note something else here, too. This is not the same witness I mentioned before in connection with Debbie, but there is yet another witness who is on the interview list for the police, and yet there's no record of her ever being interviewed. She is mentioned in a statement given by Ms. Schaub, and from what Ms. Schaub has to say, she is a person who you'd expect to be a favorable witness for Adnan, and yet, again, it's another dead end in the sense that we have nothing 
in the way of what this student told to either Miss Shab or the police. Yeah, she shows up in some handwritten notes here and there, but she's been kind of scrubbed from the official reports. Another witness that O'Shea talks to is Inez Butler. This is the interview where Inez tells him that Hay was not going to a wrestling match that day, and that when she talked to Hay on the 13th, Hay said she was having problems at home and wanted to contact her father in California. O'Shea also speaks to the manager at the Owings Mills Lenscrafter store. Now to back up a bit, on January 13th, 1999, Don says he was working at Lenscrafters, but not the normal one that he usually worked at with Hay. That store was the Owings Mills Lenscrafters. On the 13th, however, he went to a different store, the Hunt Valley store, to fill in for another employee. The cops never talked to anyone at the Hunt Valley store. There's no record, no statement or anything from anyone who might have seen Don on the 13th. O'Shea does have contact with the manager at the Owings Mills store, although that manager tells O'Shea that Don was working at the Hunt Valley store on the 13th, it's not clear what the source of her information is. We know that Don was actually working at the time that O'Shea spoke to the manager, so it's possible that Don himself was the source of that information. Other than this one conversation with the Owings Mills Mall Lenscrafters manager, there is no attempt made during the investigation to obtain Don's work records or to verify with documentation his story that he was working at the Hunt Valley store that day. Eight months later, during the trial, those records are obtained, but we'll discuss that at a later date. The most significant thing that happens on February 1st is O'Shea's second interview with Adnan. He gives Adnan a call, and they talk, and this time, O'Shea asks him about Officer Adcock's report. Officer Adcock was the police officer that made the initial missing person report and who called Aisha and Adnan on the evening of the 13th. And in that report, Adcock wrote, Mr. Syed advised that victim Lee was supposed to give him a ride home after school but he was running late and he felt that victim Lee probably left after waiting a short while. Adnan corrects O'Shea and says, nope, I didn't say that. I had my own car that day. And later at trial, this is used as evidence to show that Adnan was lying about what happened on the 13th. What I've always found interesting though, is that O'Shea waited until February 1st to ask about this. Were the notes taken contemporaneously for February 1st? They were also written much later, right? O'Shea's report of his interviews with Adnan were, like the rest of his reports, written on February 14th. So again, they're written with hindsight. They're written after the body has been found and after Adnan has been identified as a suspect in her murder. Is this the first time the ride is mentioned ever since Adcock's report? It is the first time it's been mentioned. It, it does raise the question, why didn't he ask on the 25th about it, but does ask about it on the 1st? And why didn't he ask other students about it? Well, we do know that in between those two interviews, he talked to Aisha. And according to Krista, Aisha knew about the ride request, which raises the possibility that that's where O'Shea learned about it. I will note that in the missing persons report, it is a bit odd how it's laid out. And it's a three-paragraph report. And the first paragraph just says, Hey, failed to get her cousins. And Officer Adcock spoke to the family. And they all didn't know where she might be. There are two more paragraphs, but they're written in a, a slightly different style of handwriting. It's still Adcock, but it seems like it's less hurried writing. I don't think it's beyond the realm of possibility that the second half of that report was written at a later date from the first. Tuesday, February 2nd. 
on that date, we have Hyun Sin, who was Hei's mother's ex-boyfriend living in California. He's contacted by Detective O'Shea, and according to Hyun, Hei's mother and he were never married, but they did for a time in 1996 live together in California along with Hei and her brother. And according to Mr. Sin, he hasn't seen or heard from Hei since January 13th. You might be wondering why he was contacted... Well, according to Debbie, either Aisha or she told the police she wasn't sure that she had family in California whom she might have gone to see as opposed to returning to school. And so that's probably the reason why O'Shea is calling out to California is that either Aisha or Debbie in their statements mentioned something about, hey, possibly going out to California to see this ex-boyfriend of her mother. Well, actually, Don mentioned it too. He told the police the same thing. So... Probably from one of those three comes the idea that maybe she's out in California with the ex-boyfriend. Wednesday, February 3rd. It's been three weeks since Hay disappeared. There's one record in the police file from February 3rd, and it's a little bit of an odd one. We have a, a printout from the Miles system, which is an online database that police use to pull criminal and other records on individuals. On February 3rd, they pull Adnan's records. They don't explain why. There's just the printout in there, no explanation for it. But he's the only person for whom such records are pulled throughout the investigation. It's not clear why they're checking into Adnan's background February 3rd, but it does suggest that he's already been identified as a suspect by this point. To me, what is kind of startling about the fact that on the 3rd, they're pulling only Adnan's records is that this is before there's any anonymous call made, um, which folks who listen to Serial might remember, but we're going to revisit that, uh, before his cell phone records are pulled, especially considering that they have a potential witness saying that the last time she saw Hay, Hay said, I'm going to go see Dawn. Uh, it would make sense that at least Don's records would also be pulled. So um, it's it's really odd that only Don's records would be pulled at this time. Thursday, February 4th. The next day on Thursday, February 4th, the Baltimore Sun issues a request for information on a missing woman, that woman being Heyman Lee. And let me read from that clipping from the Baltimore Sun. Heyman Lee, who lived with family members, was last seen about 3 p.m. January 13th at Woodlawn Senior High School, where she was a student. After school, she was supposed to pick up her six-year-old niece and go to work, police said, but she did not do either. And so that's significant for two reasons. One, again, it recounts Debbie being the last innocent person to see Hay alive at 3 o'clock p.m. Second, there's no mention of the wrestling match, and that dovetails with our theory that there, in fact, was no Woodlawn wrestling match on January 13th, and that Hay's only other responsibility, besides picking up her cousin, identified as the niece in the piece, was to go to work, and there was no indication of a wrestling match. On the 4th, we also have the first video clip about Hay being missing, and so let's listen to the audio from that video clip where her disappearance is being discussed. There's no reason at all, not a family fight, not having a hard time at school. I mean, you're talking to a person that's involved in an honors program. There's no reason for this disappearance, and it's very troubling to the family. And we as investigators want to find her as soon as we can. Another witness recalls seeing this new segment, or one much like it, on February 4th. And that's Jen. Jen says that on that day, they were at Champs, a bar not too far from Jay's house. So um, we were at Champs. And I was up talking with somebody or maybe dancing or something, I don't know. And um, Jay came up to me and was like, 
Yo, they just said that his body is missing on, I just saw it on the TV. And he told me that he saw it, and I said, oh, um, now what? His body missing. Yeah, that he had saw it on the television, that her body had been missing. I have had a number of theories about what's going on here, about what exactly Jen means and how to interpret her explanation of what's going on. I have to hear those theories, Susan. <sighs> okay, so there's speculation that's, you know, pretty easy to credit that it just shows how confused Jen was and she didn't really understand what she was referring to or was talking about events she hadn't actually lived through because there's confusion over whether Hay was dead or whether Hay was missing. I've always wondered this, and maybe one of you two knows this better than me. How exactly does Jen know Hay? Jen has said that she's not entirely certain she knows who Hay is, but she thinks she knows who Hay is. How can she dislike Hay if she's not even sure who yeah, she is? Yeah, I don't know. What? So did Jen graduate from Woodlawn in 1998? Yeah. A year earlier, yeah, okay. a year earlier. The reason I want to hear your theory, Susan, is because when I read this or when I hear this, I don't know what to, it's it's like the J police statements. I cannot make head or tails. I don't know what the hell is happening here. The only thing that really comes close to making sense for me, and it doesn't really make sense, so, you know. <laughs> but the one that, that kind of seems coherent is that it goes back to Jen explaining when she found out that Hate was dead and how initially she didn't really believe Jay. Her reaction was, how would you know that? You don't know that. And hate. She didn't believe Jay, but she helped him dispose of shovel or shovels. Yeah. So, you know, I kind of wondered if, if Jen heard this from Jay, had been thinking about it, but the whole time she's like, oh, he's just making something up and kind of forgets about it. And then in the fourth, this report runs and she's like, that's the girl Jay was talking about and she really is missing. Maybe there's something to this story. Yeah, she could have just misspoke when she said the the body is missing. His yeah, body is missing. it doesn't sound like that though. It's 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 a weird clip. I mean, you could speculate about it all day, but the police are pretty confused too. You can tell. And that is when I found out that she had been missing. We well, knew back. Well, yeah, obviously that she was dead. She was dead. Why would you be so shocked that now the news is reporting her that she's missing? She has been murdered. Um, I don't know, I guess I was just surprised. I don't know. I don't know. I was, maybe I wasn't surprised. Maybe I was just like, oh, no, what do we do now? Maybe it was more like, oh, no, what do we do now? Rather than surprised, I guess. What's weird, too, is we know Stephanie learned that Hay had disappeared. I believe this was the when, uh, one week exactly after that Hay disappeared in the 13th. And obviously, Jay and Stephanie are dating. And so, right, I mean, you you would imagine that this had come up at some point in time before this date, but maybe not. Yeah. But apparently, Jen and Jay are, for some reason, either surprised or taken off guard. They feel it necessary to tell someone else about the murder. And that's Nicole, who is Jen's friend and a co-worker at Garland's. So on the 4th, this new segment plays. They're at the bar. And Jen's like, hey, Nicole, that girl on the TV, I know who killed her. I don't know what's going on with that. The police never talked to Nicole, so... I mean, maybe this never even happened. But at the same time, Nicole's the one who Jen says informed her that Hay had been strangled. In Jen's very first interview on the 26th of February, she apparently already knows that Hay had died by strangulation, and the police had not publicly released that yet. And in the police notes, you can see where they've written down that Jen tells them Nicole 
Jen's friend, said that Hay had been killed by strangulation. And the detectives thought this was significant because it's not public knowledge at this point. So if someone knows it, they have a tie to the killer, presumably. But even aside from being the alleged source of that information, Jen clearly states that Nicole knew about the murder at least four days before the body was found, and yet the police never think to talk to her. Do we know of the relationship between Jay and Nicole? It's, we don't. It seems possible that Jay and Nicole's boyfriend might have been friends, but again, the record's so unclear. They at least all knew of each other and hung out at the bar together, but I don't know anything beyond that. Saturday, February 6th. Two days later on Saturday, February 6th, the police used dogs to search the woods and the fields surrounding Woodlawn High School. And we have this map showing how the police were considering a possible link between the disappearance of Jada Lambert six months ago and the disappearance of Heyman Lee. And just to clarify, at this time, Lambert's death is still an open case. They do not figure out until, I think, three years after this point that Roy Davis killed her, and they found that out through DNA testing. But at this time, it's just another girl from Woodlawn who's last seen leaving her house and disappears to be found later, strangled in a park. Monday, February 8th. On Monday, February 8th, we have what I consider one of the most frustrating parts of this investigation. You can tell that the people at Serial feel the same way. So on that Monday the 8th, Detective O'Shea seizes Hayes' computer to search it for evidence. And on that same day, we have Detective John Rao of the Computer Crimes Unit. He serves a subpoena. In other words, he's requesting documentation for computer records from America Online in reference to Hayes' email accounts. He's basically trying to figure out what emails she might have sent and received in the days leading up to January 13th. About a week later, Detective Rao communicates with Detective McGillivary and Carew that he was told to cease his investigation relating to the computer because the case had been turned from a missing persons case into a homicide investigation and transferred from Baltimore County to Baltimore City. Thereafter in the files, we have no mention of the computer, the email account, anything being searched. And when Cyril covered this last fall, we have Baltimore City saying, we never got the computer from Baltimore County. And then we had the following quote, at this time, we have not found any additional items, including the computer, records, or reports. So we mentioned before the floppy disk diary, that never being discovered, the information, the gold mine that could have been lost. Here we have his entire computer, her email account. We know it was requested, we know they wanted the documents, and yet we have no idea what happened to the computer. The investigation was ceased. We have no meaningful information about anything Hay did electronically that could give us a clue about what happened in this case. And we know roughly why they wanted that information and why they wanted the AOL records and why they wanted the computer. And that was because Hay apparently spent a fair amount of time online and hanging out in what the report calls Asian chat rooms. I'm not certain what that means, but it seems like she did have people she was friendly with online and communicating with on a regular basis. Yeah, I mean, we've speculated before, right? I and mean, we, we've had several people say that, hey, at the end of the school day said something came up, she had something else to do and somewhere else to be. My personal theory is that someone paged her between lunch and the AP psychology class. And right, if we had these chat rooms, emails, the computer, 
that could point us in the direction of someone who could be the person who contacted her. And yet this entire life of, hey, outside of school and online, it's just gone. It's There's no record whatsoever. Baltimore County doesn't have it. Baltimore City doesn't have it. And there's just real no good explanation of how this entire computer of hers just goes missing and it's up in smoke. We know that the missing person consultant that they brought in wrote in a report that they would be monitoring chat rooms that Hay had been known to use. So it was something they were looking into pretty heavily, and yet we have no records of it beyond these few scattered mentions. They did pull her AOL profile, which listed her interests as movies, phone, partying, TV, music, and most importantly, Dawn. And her likes were listed as looking in his blue-gray eyes, fast cars like his Camaro, driving to Bel Air, selling glasses and her beauty, spending as much time as possible in the lab, occupation, part-time sales, full-time girlfriend, and the last line of it was, I love you and I miss you, Donnie. So this is interesting. To me, this kind of almost dates that profile, right? Like, we know that this profile must have been created, or it could have been updated, I suppose. Yeah, the past after January weeks. 1st. Yeah. Right, January 1st being the first date that she had with Don. And yeah, it's worth noting that although Hay seems to have been very enthusiastic about Don, it doesn't seem as if Don was quite as enthusiastic as she was about the relationship. A couple of reports mention it, and one of them does state flat out he did not appear as enthused about their relationship as Haley's diary indicates that she was. It's interesting. I wonder exactly what was said. I can't tell from those notes is this something explicit that Don's saying, or is it just a sense that the officers get from Don? It's interesting. I wish we had more information to see exactly why the police thought this was important and what their base of information was. Yeah, they thought it was worth noting in their reports, but they don't go beyond that. So, you know, more questions. And sticking with February 8th, we also have a big gap in the record that's, again, extremely frustrating. And that's at 3.55 p.m. We know that Adnan made a cell phone call to O'Shea. However, if we look at O'Shea's records, he doesn't include any details of the February 8th conversation with Adnan. Although he does note at trial that he had additional conversations with Adnan during this time period. And so what exactly happened during this conversation, we have no idea. We know the conversation took place. We have no idea of the content of that conversation. And we do know from Peter, one of Adnan's friends, that at least one time Adnan was at Peter's house when the detective called. And Peter said that Adnan acted totally normal. He was totally appropriate in how he handled it and that it didn't seem like a big deal at all. It's been 28 days since Hay disappeared. Today, on February 9th, 1999, the Baltimore City Police get a call from a man who's made a terrible discovery inside Lincoln Park. He's come across the partially buried body of a young Asian female, who was later going to be identified as Hay. The case has now gone from a missing persons investigation to a homicide case. This man, who we are going to refer to as Mr. S, just like in serial, has a story that the police don't initially buy. And so, having reported his find, he unwittingly becomes a suspect. Tuesday, February 9th. 
They go to the college where Mr. S worked, and together they drive down to Lincoln Park, where he shows them the body he found in the woods. Homicide detectives are called in, the scene is secured, and a few hours later, Mr. S is taken down to the station for questioning. Mr. S lived on the west side of Lincoln Park, and the college he worked at was over on the east side. So to get back and forth, he drove through Lincoln Park. At around lunchtime that day, he went home, and on his way back, he stopped his truck because he had to go to the bathroom to take a leak real bad, according to the police notes. He got out of his truck and walked into a wooded area where he noticed the earth had been disturbed, he said. And then he saw some hair partially covered in dirt. He walked around and then noticed that there was a foot. At that point, he left, went straight to the school where he told campus police about what he'd seen. So, Susan, you know, the first time I ever uh, visited the burial site in Lincoln Park was actually when I went with you and Yusuf and my own brother, Saad, uh, a number of months back. Um, and I have my own particularities. I just am not comfortable visiting places of pain. For example, I've been to San Francisco many times. I refuse to go to Alcatraz. But anyway, um, for the sake of the investigation, I went with you and we looked for the, the burial site. And it was interesting because the log we initially thought was the log that she was buried behind. It turns out it was a wrong log. And you correctly identified the right log later. And I returned there with Ramiro, who you know has created our theme music and has done the photography for us. And that log, the correct log, is not straight back from the road. It's actually hidden from the road, um, which made a lot of sense to me. Because uh, initially I thought, God, that's a really busy road. You know, how is anybody carrying a body back there or hanging out back there or digging back there? I mean, if it's daytime, there's a bunch of cars. If it's nighttime, you could easily see flashlights from the road. There's a lot of police presence in the area. Yeah, that was my impression when we went there. It just It's, it's not a place to bury a body. It, it's... It's a really bad choice. I did not expect that. I thought it would be kind of more discreet or maybe make a little more sense. But, but that's because we were looking at the wrong log. Oh, yeah, I meant the place in general, just the whole site. The place in general, yeah. But, but here's the thing, though. If you go to the correct log, which is at an angle to the road, it's actually behind a huge uh, mess of brambles, and you pretty much cannot be seen from the road from there. And we tested it. Um, and uh, there's a natural depression under the log. Um, it, there's a little bank right there that goes down to the stream that has a lot of rocks. And I know all of this is kind of relevant to what the crime scene looked like. But I will say this, that it is really, really, really ridiculously unlikely that anybody's going to go there to take a leak. You kind of have to fight through the brush to get to that point. Uh, it's not a straight shot back yeah, on the road. It's overgrown too. Like there's vines in the way. It's not a place you would stroll casually ever. Although I don't know what the habits of streakers entail. Yeah, that's, <laughs> there's that. There is that too. And part of the problem here is that there were not good records kept. There are two different maps that show how and where the body was. And one of them is frankly inaccurate. It's the one that says 127 feet. That's not true. It has the log positioned the wrong way. It has the body positioned the wrong way. And that's the map I was looking at the first time. There's a second map that's more accurate. And using that one, I was able actually on the phone to direct Rabia how many steps to take. She found that log, which matches pictures I've since found. So yeah, it's the right one. And it matches all the details that have ever been testified to. So yeah, maybe Mr. S was streaking back there. That's a possible explanation. One thing that I've wondered about is whether Mr. S might have seen something while driving through the park to or from work one day. 
And if something caught his eye, something was back there, and that alerted him to the possibility that there was something of interest to be seen there. I have a different theory. What's that? My theory is not that he saw something, because again, I'm telling you, that particular log, like you can't see it from the road. So my theory is that he heard something, uh, and he went specifically looking for her body. There's another reason, though, why we're questioning how Mr. S found the body and whether the pausing to pee in the woods or the streaking story can actually explain how he found her. That's because of the polygraph examination that Mr. S was given. Actually, there were two of them, but we'll discuss that at a later date. There is another story about how the body was found in the woods. And that comes from Jen. I'll let her explain it. Um, the day that they found her body, what I had heard was that they found a foot in Lincoln Park. Somebody had found a foot sticking up out of the ground in Lincoln Park. Um, and I, you know, I didn't, I didn't even think, I didn't even think that it was his body at all. I mean, cat bodies always get dumped in Lincoln Park. Like, I hear about it all the time. So I happened to mention something to Nicole. We were in the car. We were in her car, and Josh was in the car. Josh is Nicole's boyfriend. And I said to Nicole, I said, yo, did you hear anything about that body? She was like, she was like yeah, my mom found a body at the gate this morning, and she unlocked it. And I said to Nicole, I was like, I was like, do you, you know, what else? So I was like, and I don't know whether Nicole or whether Josh had mentioned that the body was strangled. And I was like, if it was strangled, I was like, I bet you it was her body. I bet you they found hay. And that's all I said. So I guess at that point, then Josh and his friend Mark, who was in the car as well, then also. Yeah, so I have no idea what Jen is talking about. There was no other body found in Lincoln Park in January. So it's not that she's confusing Hay's body being found with the body of some other victim being found. The location where she's talking about is north of Franklin Town Road, which is the road Hay was buried along. So yeah, I got nothing. I have no idea why Jen is convinced that Hay was found by her friend Nicole's mom in a different place entirely from where the body was actually located. I don't know if y'all have any thoughts about that. or what's. I, I got nothing. I got nothing. Yeah, I don't know what's happening here. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. I have no idea. I mean, it's just one of those things, again, with Jen, where you have no idea whether she knows nothing, she knows something and is making something up, or or she's just horribly confused. But again, we have Nicole and Josh being mentioned once more. These are people that Jen has mentioned previously as being involved in conversations about Hay's death. They seem very relevant to the investigation, and they do appear on a list of people to be interviewed. So the cops did think about it, and either they decided not to, or... Who knows what? I mean, yeah, you could spend all day trying to make heads or tails of Jen's statements, and you'll end up at the same place. So let's get back to Lincoln Park, uh, the site where the body was found. Hey, Minley's body was disinterred by William C. Rodriguez. He was the chief deputy medical examiner for the Office of the Armed Forces Medical Examiners and also by Grant D. Graham Sr., who was part of that same Office of the Armed Forces Medical Examiners. Unfortunately, we lack a lot of information about what exactly they did because per the request of the state, they didn't take written notes to the crime scene. Why is that the case? Well, we have discovery rules. Discovery rules are the rules by which 
the defense is entitled to certain evidence from the prosecution and the prosecution is entitled to certain evidence from the defense. One bedrock principle of the discovery rules is if you're going to call an expert witness at trial in advance of trial, you have to provide any written reports created by that expert. The end around by the state in this case is to say, well, if they don't create reports, they don't have to turn them over. And so in this case, not only with Rodriguez, but for a lot of people, there's simply not a lot of written documentation so that that information did not have to be disclosed to the defense before trial. All we have from Dr. Rodriguez is a one-page summary made by Prosecutor Kathleen Murphy. Again, this is the entirety of his report of the crime scene and the disinterment. Body partially buried. Very little of body exposed. Could not see from street. They found trace evidence, two pieces. Bright orange fiber toward shoulder area and another fiber that was fluorescent blue. The orange fiber was synthetic and on top of body. The other was underneath. Fiber does not belong to victim's clothing. Rocks piled on her. Area had been dug out. Dirt over it. Large rocks on body, one on hand. Keep animals from dragging body off. Way body is exposed, animal activity. Soil samples. Typical of wooded area, highly organic. Collected plants, green plant material. Couldn't tell if tool used. So again, she's placed in a depression and covered over, and it looks like it might have been dug out, but there's no indication one way or another if tools were used. And this could go back to explaining the whole shovel or shovels dichotomy, or pick the fact that Jay and Jen can't seem to agree on how many or what tools were used to bury Hey, because it's possible that no tools were used at all. They found a lot of debris scattered along the roadside. They found the blockbuster video case, the two of them. They found the rolled condom and condom wrapper, and they found an assortment of cartridge casings. But again, all of that is within a few feet of the roadside. The blockbuster videos and the gun shells, mostly, were all on the south side of the street, whereas the condom wrapper and a few of the casings were over on the north side towards where Hayes' body was. Beyond those items, though, there were only three items taken into evidence, and all of those were found in the immediate proximity of Hayes' body. What's interesting is that at trial, it seems like there's a bit of, you know, an attempt to hide this fact because Yurik questions witnesses and asks them about how messy the crime scene was and how much trash was littered around. But aside from the items on the roadside, there is no evidence that there was trash actually back in the woods. And it seems to be an attempt to downplay the significance of the evidence that was found back in the woods, all of which was right next to hay. The first thing we had were the feathers, or feather. They used both the singular and the plural. It's not clear how many there were, but they were found two feet away from Hay's body on a log. I always found this kind of odd because, I mean, it is the woods. Yeah, um, you find you, a feather there. It's not... Right. Yeah, so... It, Either they're collecting literally everything, or it's because they weren't wild bird feathers. They were perhaps downed from a jacket or a blanket. But we don't know what kind of feathers they were. We don't have pictures. We don't have descriptions. So we don't know why they thought these feathers mattered. And if they were from a blanket or a jacket, I think that's a significant deal because there's nothing about that that would match Jay's stories. The other two items of evidence that were found outside of the roadside area were a rope and a brandy bottle. Let's start with the rope. This one is maddening because the reports are so unclear and so contradictory about what's going on with it. We know it was found only five inches from Hay's body. 
It's described as a rope in most reports, but in one of the initial reports, we have it described as a section of clothesline, and in another earlier report, it's described as a section of insulated wire. After that, it's always just called the rope. And in fact, it seems to have gone missing because when Gutierrez conducted an evidence review, she couldn't locate it. There's testimony that the strangulation could have been done by a rope. I was about to say the same thing as that Dr. Carell thinks it's possibly manual strangulation, meaning by the hands with no instrumentality, but she says it certainly could have been through the use of a rope because there's marks on the back of Hayes' neck which are either consistent with the killer wearing gloves or it possibly being something like a rope. And so this would have been something very important for them to test because it could have been the murder weapon, literally. But we don't even know if it was a rope, a clothesline, or wire. And how long it was, how it was positioned near the body, we know nothing. We just know that there was a section of some kind of long, flexible material found five inches from where Hay's body was located in the woods. The last item we have is the brandy bottle. The brandy bottle was only eight inches from where Hay was buried. This one they did test. They were able to retrieve human skin cells from the neck of the bottle, which means there was DNA there that could be tested, and it was in their possession. They never requested testing of it, however, and I think we know why. The cops asked all of Adnan's friends if he drank. They all said mostly no, and then one or two said he'd had a drink one time at New Year's recently, but that's it. So the cops knew that Adnan was not a drinker. And given that he's had a little bit of alcohol at a New Year's Eve party, he's not going to go from that to chugging down a bottle of brandy in the woods. So I, it, to me, it looks like they felt confident this brandy bottle did not come from Adnan and therefore did not want testing to be done. And we know from articles that were published not long after Hayes' death, this was kind of the policy that the Baltimore police had. They would not test DNA evidence where there were concerns that would come back with a result that would complicate the investigation. Yeah, and I think this is a pretty major discovery. I mean, certainly when I listened to Cyril last fall, I was under the impression that, yeah, there was a lot of junk and trash in the general area where Hayes' body was found. And, you know, this could have been random stuff, but I mean, from what we found here, there's really only three items that are somewhat close to Hayes' body, and they're very close. One is five inches, one is eight inches. And so, I mean, it seems to me there's a very good chance that at least one of these items has a connection to Hayes' killer, and yet, as you say, they almost consciously avoid testing this evidence to determine what results might come back. Yeah, the only DNA testing that's ever done in this case is never done on anything found at the Lincoln Park crime scene. It's a shirt that was found in Hayes' car that had some blood stains on it. And they did, eventually, in September, October, test the blood stains and determined that they were probably a match for Hay. So they were doing DNA testing. And here's a detail that set off alarm bells in my head. And I have no idea what's going on here, and I have no idea if this is normal. But when they did the DNA testing of that shirt in September, October of 99, Melissa Stangroon, the analyst, noted that although the seal on the evidence container that had Jay's DNA was still sealed, the seals on the DNA containers for Adnan and Hay had been broken. Since no DNA testing had been done before, I don't know, why were the seals broken when Stangroom got it? There's no reason for that. To me, makes it a legitimate question of whether or not there was testing performed that was never disclosed. Yeah, what I'll add at this point is to say there's an evidentiary principle known as chain of custody. And that says if you are trying to admit evidence or the results taken from evidence, you have to prove that it's the same item in substantially the same condition. You have to prove 
every set of hands that evidence went through. And so in this case, if Gutierrez had this report and she should have had the report, she would have had a serious objection either to exclude the evidence or to have the jury discount the testing because, right, we have no accounting for how this seal was broken on the blood samples for Hay and Adnine. And that means something happened with those samples before they're ultimately tested to compare against the shirt. And so evidentiary-wise, that's a significant error by the state. So even though they did do DNA testing in September of the shirt, they still felt no need to test the DNA on a brandy bottle found inches from Hay's body under circumstances that, to me, clearly create an inference that that bottle was placed there in connection with her burial. It seems like too much of a coincidence to think that the burial site chosen by whoever buried Hay just happened to be the same place where someone else randomly scattered a brandy bottle. The Baltimore City Police now have an open homicide investigation on their hands. Evidence has been collected from the crime scene, and Hayes' body is immediately taken to the medical examiner to have an autopsy performed. Now, the police are still searching for her car, which will eventually become a second crime scene and also become part of the state's narrative that Hay was killed in her car by 2.36 p.m., that her body was hidden in the trunk of her own car, and she was buried around 7 p.m. that evening. Now remember, the state corroborates this narrative using the infamous Lincoln Park pings. But the autopsy reports are going to tell us an entirely different story. It's highly unlikely that Hay was killed in her car, and she definitely wasn't buried at 7 p.m. Next time on Undisclosed. A special thanks to Amr Naji, our sound editor, Ramir Marquez, who created our theme music, and Baluki, who designed our logo. Dennis Robinson is our executive producer. You can follow us online on Facebook and Twitter. Our Twitter handle is UndisclosedPod. Remember to tweet us your comments and questions using the hashtag Undisclosed. Thanks for listening to Undisclosed, The State vs. Adnan Sayyid.